Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I spoke with Michigan State Representative Rajiv Puri. We talked about how his path to public service was inspired by tragedy and a conversation with Barack Obama. He also shares his insights into the future of transportation and mobility. Representative Puri is the first sick American legislature in Michigan history. He holds an MBA from the University of Chicago and is a father to three young kids. There's a lot to learn from Representative Puri and the Michigan Democrats. Enjoy. Michigan Representative Rajiv Puri, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We have a lot to talk about. You are 38 years old and already had a really distinguished career in politics, in business, in community, and just your life path. But first, I want to start with today is a pretty good day to be a uh, Democrat in Michigan politics. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in your state and why the rest of the country should be looking your direction for inspiration and maybe a model to a majority going forward? Yeah, no, that's right. Again, you know, thanks for having me. It is a it's a beautiful time to be a Democrat in Michigan. We've waited a long time to be able to say that. But what you're alluding to is just a couple of weeks ago in the midterm elections, we were able not only to retain our governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, we were able to retain our attorney general, our secretary of state, our Michigan Supreme Court. And now we've also flipped the Michigan Senate and the Michigan House. And that's not all happened since in, in over 40 years. And so it's a long time since we've had this majority. We were able to do it, obviously, in a national climate where there was a forecast of somewhat of a red wave happening. But for Democrats to have that tremendous amount of success in a midterm off cycle, something that we are extremely happy about and excited about what that will mean for the next two to four years here in Michigan. And you are the majority whip in the Michigan State House. Can you talk a little bit about what that position entails and then how you plan to use it and for what kind of agenda priorities? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the whip is often a position that uh, doesn't get the notoriety of other other leadership positions, but I am honored to be appointed the majority whip in the, in the Michigan House. We we're able to flip the House, as I mentioned, but we have a simple 56-54 majority. And so what that means, unfortunately, is that we have no votes to spare. And so the WIP primarily responsibility is to make sure that any bill that we're taking up for a vote will have those 56 votes in order to get it across the finish line. And so that means that you have a tremendous amount of uh, responsibility of having relationships on both sides of the aisles, but having a good read of, of our own caucus, making sure that there are if there are any issues that those are taken care of. And again, just to make sure that any bill that we put up will have the 56 votes needed to pass. Now, I imagine 
in the popular imagination that people think about these whip positions at all. You know, it's about twisting arms and putting people in corners. But what does leadership really look like when you're trying to hold your caucus together and ensure that everybody's on board? It's a great question. I don't think that there is a one unique formula that works for everybody. You know, I think the position of whip has been dramatized in some programs, especially on Netflix, some of the, the political programs there about the role of the whip and, and how they, again, twist those arms literally and figuratively to to get the votes. But, you know, what we're doing is, uh, you know, we are the big tent caucus. And so we have a lot of perspectives in our caucus. And, and, and really what's going to be important for us is making sure that we are standing up for kind of all sides of the ideologies that 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 are in the Democratic caucus and and making sure that everyone's voices are heard. And obviously things are our business is a is a series of negotiations. And so nothing's black and white at times, but making sure that if we can't get someone on on this go around, that making sure that we are prioritizing their values, their needs, you know, throughout throughout the term and making sure that again that everyone's voices and opinions are lifted. So the state of Michigan, you know, like the country has is divided between very urban areas, suburban areas, rural areas, and you have representatives that represent each one of those. How do you think about policies when, at least in the popular discourse, there's a lot of talk about suburban and rural divides and urban and suburban divides? How do you overcome that within a caucus? That's obviously a question that we deal with all the time. You know, I think one thing I've learned, you know, in, in my time in Lansing and as a member of the caucus is that, you know, the, there's obviously many ways to divide and to break up our caucus, whether it's geographic or ideology or age or race. You know, one of the things that we value is the diversity of the opinions that we are bringing into our caucus. And there's not actually as much as a divide when we get down to kind of the values that we stand about. And so I think. At times, it's important to center, recenter conversations to to show people that we are, we generally are very united on kind of what side of the issues that we fall on. And so, and the reason I bring that up is because the the success that we had campaign side this last cycle was a sign of us winning in all parts of the state. But there was a very unified message on improving the quality of lives of Michiganders. And we didn't get into the cultural wars and those things that are wedge issues that that divide, but we focused on, again, the issues of that are economic and, and social issues that were that are important and top of mind issues. People all over the state, regardless of where they live and zip code, and those were the winning issues. And I, and I think that there was a blueprint to be taken from that, that we can use, you know, kind of stateside within our caucus chambers to make sure that, again, that we are unified and that we are all voting together in the next two years here. I should also say that in addition to being a whip, you're on the energy and transportation committees. And then in your private sector life, uh, you work in the automobile industry. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the future of energy and transportation and how Michigan is preparing for that future? Yeah. Anyone who's talked to me for more than five minutes knows that that's what uh, I'm very passionate about. So I don't know if I heard you right, but just to, for sake of clarification, Michigan actually has a full-time legislator. And so I was unfortunately had to give up my job in the private sector and the, working in the automotive industry as part of my first election in, in 2020. And so, but, but you're correct, before joining, I worked in the automotive sector, primarily focused on electric vehicles and the mobility movement. That's an evolution that's happening here. That's obviously a big conversation in Southeastern Michigan. And so, you know, I quickly aligned myself to where those conversations were going to be housed on the policy side. And, and, and the way the committee structure is broken up, it was primarily the energy committee and the transportation committee 
we're going to be hosting those. And so I'm biased probably, but I am probably the loudest voice in Lansing on electric vehicles and and what we need to be doing to making sure that we are preparing for those changes and that they're accessible and affordable for people, again, all over the state. And so we weren't able to have a lot of those conversations in my first term due to us being our party being in the minority. But that's one of the things that I'm hoping with kind of these these new changes that are coming about after the midterm elections that we're going to be housing a lot more of those conversations on just those very topics. Can you give us a sense of, you know, I think a lot of people are interested in moving to electric. How big is the opportunity and how big are the challenges that we're facing as we make a shift away from traditional transportation? Right, right. Yeah. You know, and so I, again, I'm very bullish on on the technology. I, I worked on that very topic in the private sector. And so I'm kind of all in. I think that we need to all be investing all of our resources in, in kind of switching over. And, and I, even as bullish as I am, I understand that that doesn't happen overnight. There's just obviously a very systemic way of doing things. And there's, you know, a, a few hundred million cars, combustion engine cars that are on the roads. And so those changes aren't going to happen overnight. But if you look at the logarithmic graph of the adoption rates from horse and buggy to combustion engine, it actually mirrors the adoption rates of combustion engines to EVs. So there's a, a lot of similarity in kind of how these technologies were being adopted in terms of early inception of them. And so and there was pr- plenty of headache and naysayers about the combustion engine when they were moving over from the horse and buggy. And you see a lot of it now in the electric vehicle space. But I'm in the school of thought that the movement is too big and that, you know, regardless of what happens in the Michigan legislature, the EV revolution is global, it's happening, and it's essentially a tidal wave that you either want to be in front of or you're going to get kind of swept away. And so, you know, obviously, given the legacy infrastructure that we have in place in, in southeastern Michigan and now increasing all over the state of Michigan in terms of factories and, and, and supplier network, it's just a very logical transition for Michigan to hopefully lead the way in that new evolution of mobility. And so we are fighting hard to make sure that those those billions of dollars that are being invested by all the you know various OEMs are building their plants in, in Michigan or converting old legacy combustion engine facilities into EV battery facilities. We're seeing some of those wins up front. We've lost a couple as well, but that is kind of the talk of the hour, ensuring that Michigan is kind of setting itself up economically in that movement. And then obviously, just to your question, it's more than just the economics of it. You know, they're just, they're better for the environment. You know, once some of these other emerging technologies, such as the self-driving technology come about, and there's a lot of debate in terms of how, what that timeline looks like, but for conversation's sake, if let's say whenever that technology is ready, it's going to mean that car ownership will be cheaper. It's going to mean that cars are going to be more accessible. If you can't drive a car right now due to old age or being too young or some sort of other disability, you know, those are those people will now have accessibility to transportation and find some independence that they previously didn't have. And so I just think that there's a tremendous amount of benefits to all this happening. And it's something that I'm really hoping that we're going to be on the forefront of. And I'm out here in California. And obviously, we're looking at a series of mandates as well as incentives to accelerate that shift. What do you think, if you're an elected official in a city or in another state, what do you recommend from your experience in the private sector and also in the public sector that they should be looking at to to be ready for this, this shift that, as you say, is accelerating? I think it's a lot. I think holistically, there's a lot that can happen on every level of government to prepare for these changes. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in place when it comes 
the topic of, you know, repairing roads or building new roads. Those are types of conversations where I envision a group of elected officials in a room and you're going to say, who's going to pay for it? And everyone just points to a different person. I've been in that room. Right, right, exactly. So I think there's some coordination that's going to be needed to, to make sure that all levels of government are on the same page of kind of what that strategy is going to look like. I think something that local municipalities can do is, I just say this maybe from recency bias, as I got an EV the other day and I registered it and I had to get a charger put into my garage and there was a whole bunch of local permitting fees that I had to pay. And so, you know, maybe there's ways that we could, uh, you know, build out a credit. So it's just, again, making it more accessible for people and limiting the amount of barriers that are required. If you're going to buy an EV and you need to get a charger installed in your garage, that shouldn't cost an arm and a leg or be the reason you don't purchase the vehicle. And there's obviously other other tax incentives out there as well. But I just think it's something that does need to be coordinated at multiple levels. But I I think it's absolutely possible. But again, it's just I'm realistic to know it's not going to happen overnight. So while I could keep talking about this subject all day, I do want to hear a little bit about your journey into public service. Obviously, you had a lot of opportunity in the private sector. What made you decide to pursue this career? I appreciate that question. And I, and I like telling the story. Sometimes I get caught up in it. So let me know if I need to speed up. But so I'm the son of immigrants. My parents came to this country nearly 50 years ago this year, actually. And, you know, those lovebirds back then could have sailed anywhere between Los Angeles, close to where you're at, and New York City. And they picked Racine, Wisconsin, of all places. And so I was born out there. And culturally, they were of the Sikh faith. I mean, there wasn't just a lot of people that looked like them when they arrived. And so slowly, you know, they built out a community and they started the first Sikh Gurdwara or temple in the state of Wisconsin or were part of the group that established that back in the day. And so I saw firsthand just kind of what community building looked like and 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 valued being born in this country and, and the privilege that that provided upon me. And I grew up kind of being a, a good child of immigrants, you know, focused on my studies and got my MBA and, and thought that was going to be my path forward. But along the way, I got a chance when I was living out in Chicago, I took a chance and 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 worked for a guy named Barack Obama in 2008 and got a chance to work on that campaign and completely changed my life and the way that I thought and viewed public service. I thought it was going to be a one-time thing. But then in 2012, he had his re-election campaign out in Chicago and I joined that on the finance team. And again, just took a broader role and enjoyed every minute of it. But unfortunately, in 2012, while I was working on that campaign, there was a shooting where a white supremacist walked in to a Sikh Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and killed six people that day, you know, Islamophobic and hate-based. But that was the, the temple that my parents started many years ago. And so, you know, the, the story was on, you know, CNN and all the outlets. And I saw, you know, very close family friends, you know, mourning on, on national TV, and it just hit very different. But then also, I saw the story was taken off the news in probably a 12-hour cycle because I think there was another shooting. But that whole incident represented my my family's entire story of my parents' immigration story of setting up their community. And it was worth, you know, about six to 10 hours on, on a 12-point headline on CNN.com. And then it was kind of taken off. And so at that point, I realized I wanted to broaden my voice to stand up for our community here. And so I had a chance to talk to President Obama after the election. And he's actually one that encouraged me to, to go out and, and, and be a voice of change that I was looking for. And I took those words to heart very seriously and went home that night, told my wife, I felt like I heard the voice of God. And uh, we moved back to Michigan, got involved kind of organizing locally and stuff. And then eventually a, a seat opened up and I decided to try for that. And, and the rest is history. 
And now you are the first sick American serving in Michigan legislative history. Can you talk a little bit about the responsibility that comes with that role and how it's impacted your service? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, it's a part of my identity and obviously make up who I am. And and I wear that with a sense of pride. And it's a, obviously it's a responsibility. Anytime you're breaking any glass ceiling, so to speak, or anytime you're the first of anything, I think there is just an added level of responsibility that comes to you because there's just a few more eyeballs on you or there's a few more people who might be rooting for you to succeed or not to succeed. And so I think it's helped prepare me well for the role. You know, obviously my intentions are not to be a sick representative, but is to be a representative that is making sure that all marginalized communities are represented and feel like their voices are being lifted up and that we're fighting for Michigan that's inclusive for everybody, regardless of their background or belief. And so, you know, just having that perspective, I think, unfortunately, has been missing for a long time, broadly speaking, in politics across the board, also in Lansing. And so I've been very proud to kind of bring some of that new energy and perspective to the table. And I think sometimes it, it certainly helps to just be a, a voice that's different than years past. Can I ask, just because you mentioned the shooting at the Sikh Temple, and we are living through seemingly daily mass shootings around the country as we speak. How have you thought about or how is the Democratic leadership in Michigan thinking about trying to reduce gun violence in your state and maybe be a model for other states? Absolutely. You know, and so I can't honestly say that I'm speaking for the entire leadership team of the state of Michigan, but I can tell you for myself personally, that's one of the, the key issues that drove me to want to get into public service. And so finding ways to pass common sense gun reform are a top priority of mine and something that I'm hoping that we take care of as quickly as possible. And that's just simple things like, you know, the red flag laws, the background checks, safe storage laws. I actually made a tremendous amount of headway this term, even in the minority. I was hoping to get some of those taken up for a vote. Didn't work out just because of calendars and politics didn't end up working out. But that's been an issue that I've been passionate about and fighting for for a long time, even before public service or elected office. And so Absolutely. You know, every time I open up, you know, the news outlets and I hear of another shooting, it, it breaks my heart and just, you know, continues to fuel the energy I have to fight for a way that of living that's just better. Because there's obviously talking to preaching the choir to a bit, but I just we're the only country that's dealing with these issues and I, it doesn't need to be this complicated. And, and I'm hoping that we can figure out these things very, very quickly to start saving innocent lives across our country. Yeah. My wife and I were talking the other day that if we were looking to move to a different country and we saw the amount of gun violence in that country, we would say, like, that's irresponsible for us to bring our family there. And yet it's something that we are reading about in this country on a regular basis. And it's just absolutely shocking. It is, you know, and I add, I mean, I have a few small children and the oldest now is in first grade and school aged. And so, you know, having to explain to young children and to prepare for acts of census gun violence is traumatizing for them. It is heartbreaking to watch them lose the innocence of thinking school somewhere safe and fun to somewhere that they need to go and potentially have bulletproof backpacks and all these drills. And it's just really sad. I didn't grow up that way. And it's just really sad that even schools have turned into a place where kids can't feel safe and secure. Absolutely. Let's talk about those young kids. Both, I think our listeners want to hear a little bit about how you balance being the father to young kids, 
Also, if they go to your Twitter feed, you can watch you take the watermelon challenge where you <laughs> strapped a watermelon to yourself to get a little sense for a day of what your wife experienced and uh, watching you unable to put on socks was quite an experience. <laughs> so what's life like trying to wear these hats and be there for young kids and also a leadership role in your state? Yeah, I mean, I can either write a book on how to do it or how just absolutely everything not to do with all that, you know, so it's obviously we're juggling a lot of balls in the air here. But, you know, I, I have a strong sense of family. I was raised that way. And it's something I, I want to instill in my kids as well. And so I take a very active role in their lives. I think one thing that's helped me is I try to incorporate them as much as possible into my life to just one to spend more time with them, but to two, just show them kind of just public service and giving back to your community and instilling that at a young age. That's just been, you know, very important to me. I also have made it a point to come home every night from Lansing. And so many of my colleagues do, you know, spend the week up there or while we're in session, but I've never spent a night in Lansing. I come home every night. I sometimes don't make it home for dinner, but at least I'll make it up for the morning routine and drop them off at school. And so I'm just very intentional about finding ways to make sure that I am there for them and spending and these kind of limited amount of time that they're young and still think I'm cool that I'm getting <laughs> as much time with them as possible, but without obviously sacrificing what I signed up for. I take this role extremely serious. Again, kind of going back to one, you know, it's just something I really wanted to do. And I put all my heart and emotion into kind of breaking those barriers to get elected to this role. And then two, obviously knowing that there's just a lot of people kind of looking up to what we're doing here and, and what we're creating. And so I try to lead in the right way. And so I want to do a very good job at that as well. And so obviously at times there's a little bit of a push and pull. And sometimes you wish there's a couple more hours in the day, but I truly enjoy everything that I do. I enjoy being a father. I enjoy being a state representative. I enjoy being a husband. But I think what's the time management that's helped me is kind of just getting things that don't bring me joy that that I seem that don't find value in kind of erasing those things from my life and just spending time on things that matter. Well, I'll tell you, as a father of an 11 year old, enjoy the time now when they think you're cool, because it passes <laughs> very quickly. And all of a sudden, you breathing is an embarrassment to them. So. Yeah, <laughs> I think I know I appreciate the guidance there. I mean, my six soon to be seven year old, I was dropping off at school the other day. And he had me stop about 50 feet from the door. And he's like, I'm good. You can drop me off here. I'll walk <laughs> the rest of the way. And I said, "Uh Oh, here we go. But it goes by fast, but obviously you wouldn't trade it for the world. So this experience, last legislative session, you were able to help craft a really bipartisan, significant child care bill. Can you talk a little bit about what that bill did? And I assume it was inspired by the challenges that you and your family have just by having young kids and trying to balance all things. That's absolutely right. You know, when I talked about kind of the, some of the different hats we wear, one of them also is being the father of young children. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of legislators that that are experiencing that right now. And so, you know, I was able to kind of have more of a leading voice on the issue of childcare, just how expensive it has become, especially in, obviously in our state of Michigan, how inaccessible it is. You know, it seems like when you have a kid, you got to register your kid on these wait lists before they're even born in many places. And then obviously with the fallout of the COVID pandemic, and the labor issues, all those things were just exasperated even more. And so I was assigned to a task force on kind of solving some of these childcare issues. And so, you know, I'm very proud of the work that we were able to put together in a bipartisan fashion, because obviously childcare affects everybody, regardless of your political 
ideology. And unfortunately, a lot of it disproportionately affected, you know, young families and working women. And so as childcare was often cited as one of the reasons why people left the workforce during COVID. And so we thought very strategically, if we could fix this, that this would also hopefully have some downstream effects of helping some of the labor issues that many of our small businesses were facing here in Michigan. And so we put together a package that helped address some of these childcare deserts. There was estimated about 10,000 of them in Michigan where childcare demand far outpaced supply. And so there was some federal tax dollars that we were able to utilize to fund those programs. And so I believe $1.4 billion was invested in the executive's budget for childcare through using our bills as the vehicle to do that and to help provide high quality childcare to these locations across the state, again, where there's childcare deserts. And so, you know, we were very intentionally focused on making sure that the, obviously the childcare being provided was high quality and also in places that needed it. And so we were able to kind of tackle a lot of our initial goals with that package. And we're hoping to actually get another round or two out of these childcare bills out, you know, in the next few months here as well. Yeah, it's funny, just bring it back full circle. It makes me think when we're talking about the future of automotive and EVs, if you're going to build advanced manufacturing and supply chains, you need people to be able to to do that. And if people don't have childcare, you can't do that. And so it goes to show how just holistic all these issues are if you're trying to advance in this in this century, you need to think about all those pieces. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's amazing to think just kind of how holistically everything is connected and put together. And, you know, in, in Michigan, if, you know, one of my goals is for Michigan to kind of lead the way in this innovation that's happening in advanced manufacturing and mobility. And the way to do that is going to be attract kind of young engineers. And so, you know, if you're attracting young engineers or young families, you know, childcare is going to be a priority issue for people. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's something that it's going to end up affecting things that might not be so directly related to what your kind of goals are policy-wise, but there's going to be a lot of a lot of downstream effects to improving that. I think it's just going to help everyone across the board. Absolutely. And as we wrap up here, I like to ask folks this question, which is, if I had 24 hours to spend in Wayne County, how would you recommend I spend it? You're going to need more than 24 hours to, to spend in Wayne County. So Wayne County is a very cool place because it's obviously the home of Detroit, which has its own history, but there's also everything outside of Detroit as well. And so you have an immense amount of communities that are made up of ethnic and cultural groups. So the food scene is second to none in Michigan. So there's just a lot of great restaurants. Then there's obviously everything by the lake in Detroit. And so a lot to do if you're a car guy, you can go to the Henry Ford Museum. And then again, there's a nightlife in Detroit as well. So we got you covered from sunrise to sunset. There's a lot to do. I appreciate that. I can actually testify that, that my undergrad roommate lived in Detroit for years. And so I used to vacation in Detroit every year. And it was always a great time. A little shocking for a California boy in winter. But other than that, it's it's uh, <laughs> it was good. No, Detroit's worth the trip and love to see if you come out here anytime soon. Well, thank you. Well, Representative Perry, thank you for your service. I think the whole country, frankly, is going to be looking to Michigan for the next two years as a place where it's going to be some really innovative policies and really, as you said, building a broader tent and a bigger coalition that will be a model, I think, for many states going forward. And so I look forward to watching what you're doing and I appreciate your commitment to service in your community. You do a great job. The honor is mine. Thank you for letting me join today. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.